For weeks and a couple weeks now, I've been saying we've been getting close, getting close, getting close to the end of the book of Samuel. And guess what? Today we're here. Praise Jesus. <laughs> uh, it's been a long, it's not been a, it's been a great book. Uh, it's been a, it's been a challenging book. It's been a um, convicting book. It's been a heavy book. Really, this book surprised me in, in, it, the, in the depths of its uh, ability to peer into human character and human nature on the depths of our sin. Uh, but even more surprising for me has been how it has brought out the depths and the riches of God's mercy and grace across the board to David. And today we're going to see the very end of David's story. David has, we're going to do uh, chapter 30 today, which chronologically is really the end of the chapter, uh, or the end of the, end of the book, even though there's another chapter after this we did last week. Uh, and David, as we've seen, has been on this roller coaster ride of crisis after crisis after crisis. Uh, last story, when we read uh, two weeks ago about David, he had utterly given up, given himself over to joining God's enemies, and God saved him out of that. Uh, and now, by the end of this chapter, we're going to see that the wilderness era of David's life is going to be over. And the kingdom of, that God has promised him begins to dawn, but not before David faces the, probably the darkest hour and the biggest challenge of this whole period. So if, you would, if you're able, would you please stand as the Lord, uh, as we hear from the Lord, as we listen intently to his inerrant word from 1 Samuel chapter 30. And now when David... And his men came to Ziklag on the third day. The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive all the women who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And then David and his people who were with him raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And so Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall overtake and you shall surely rescue. And so David set out and the 600 men who were with him. And they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the the brook Besor. Well, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. They gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt. 
servant to an Amalekite. My master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb and against the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you to this band. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. And David recovered all that was the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured the flocks and the herds and the people, drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. And then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. And the wicked and the worthless fellows among David who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and his children and depart. David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And then David came to Ziklag. He sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Eroer, in, in, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jehermalites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athach, and in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, the astonishing grace that is pours out of it uh, as we see your care of David, your protection of David, your providential care of him in the wilderness. And all of that speaks to how you care for us in the wilderness of this age, Lord. You call us sojourners in the wilderness of this age. And so we know that just as you have done for David, you will do for us. There are lessons here for us, Lord, to see how safe we really are as we lean into you and trust you uh, and, tr- and, and count on you, Lord, to come through with the promises that you have promised to us. So, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who always comes through. We pray that we would see that. We pray especially you would help us to see the beauty of our Lord Jesus as you give us minds to obey and hearts, our minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Every, every great story, one of the things that makes stories great is that they all have this moment 
of uh, this moment in the story where it, 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 it hits the, on the principle of it's always darkest before the dawn. This moment where everything seems to be failing, where the light has completely gone out and it seems like completely hopeless. Uh, but what's really happening is everything is about to change. Think about, we were just talking about at our men's group last night, um, the movie Dunkirk, uh, the real life event of Dunkirk, where all in World War II, the British troops, were com- all of the British troops, all of the army of Britain was surrounded in Dunkirk by Hitler's forces and Hitler, by a whim, decided not to attack them and what could have been a complete annihilation of, of England from World War II turned into uh, a saving moment. Think about Star Wars. The Death Star is about to completely destroy the rebel base. They're seconds away and two photon torpedoes hit the reactor and destroy the Death Star. Think of uh, let's Lord of the Rings, Sauron's power is growing, completely invincible, and at the last moment we send the two weakest guys of the team in to do the impossible, and they score the win. Every story, every great story has a moment when it's darkest before the dawn, where you're tempted to give up hope, where you think things are bad, and then they get worse, and you think it's time to give up, and right then is the moment when the sun comes up and dawns. God's grace and power on the scene. And I think all great stories capture on that because God really specializes in those moments. In fact, I think he delights in them because of what it shows us about him and what it shows us about our underdependence upon him and about what it produces in us. The ability to relax even in the darkest moments and know that God is going to come through. And that is what we see happening with David right here. David uh, is at the end of the story. And just when uh, he thought that things couldn't possibly get any worse, they just did. But what he didn't know, and what we often forget, was that all of it was God's good providence leading him into a better tomorrow. And that's the big, big idea of this passage is that even even in our darkest hour, God's providence will see us through to a better tomorrow. Even in our darkest hour, God's providence will see us through to a better tomorrow. What do I mean by that? Let's look at that one part at a time. First, in our darkest hour. Uh, there's, there's been moments in my life, maybe you can relate to this, where I have, if things have been so bad that the only thing I could really say to myself to console myself and comfort myself was to think to myself, well, it could always be way worse. And then I would maybe think of some scenarios about how it could possibly get worse and I would feel good about where I was at. But there were several times when I did that when guess what happened? It got worse. (laughs) I thought I was at the last straw. I felt my back was breaking and then some more straws got added on when I thought... uh, but, you know, when you hit, the, you hit that moment where you just, you just, you know, the Bible calls it your knees grow weak and, and, and your hands fall down and you just say, really, God? Really? You ever done that? You ever been there? That's where David is right now. He has given up. We saw in that couple chapters ago, David had become so worn out by the stress 
uh, and the rigors of hardship and the desert that he finally just, just gave up and went and joined the Philistines, God's enemies. And then God saved him from that by pulling him out of the battle line as he was gleefully marching in to fight against Israel, against Saul, even against his best friend Jonathan. And he was discouraged about that. He wanted to go so bad and he was discouraged. They have a three-day march now. They're going back to Ziklag. David and his men, they're home, completely discouraged. What are we going to do now? Even the Philistines don't want us. They come back to their hometown thinking that maybe at least we'll be able to relax in the comfort of our loved ones and they find their village has been burned to the ground and everybody's gone. Uh, and that one, that one verse is painful. It says, and they lifted up their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. Maybe you know what that's all about when you've been so upset about something that you just can't even cry anymore, when you just run out of tears. I can't imagine what that would be like. Uh, I mean, our, our good friends, Rich and Crystal Hayes, uh, who just left, who were interned here, uh, they are from Paradise, California, the town in Northern California that was just completely burned to the ground. Their parents barely got out alive. But even then, that was just the structures. They didn't lose any family. To come home and find your wife and your kids and all of your loved ones gone is the bottom of the barrel. Nothing could get darker than that. And you would think that in that darkest moment, that would be the time for David to would be most tempted to completely give up. And maybe if he was all on him, he would have. But the Spirit is operating as well. Listen to what David does. It even gets worse from there. They weep till they have no strength. All of their loved ones are gone. And then in verse 6, And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Not just... All of his loved ones were gone. But everybody left wanted to kill him. <laughs> when he thought it was as bad as it could get, it got even worse. But this is, the, this is what's so remarkable in this. It says, David turned to the Lord his God. What does that even mean? Well, it tells us. I mean, the first thing to, to pull out of that and to see is that the, the narrator makes, was very careful to say that David turned to the Lord, his God. That God was personal to David. You know, we talked last week about the danger of believing that perfect theology alone is what salvation is all about. But that uh, perfect theology alone can give you much head knowledge about God without any experiential knowledge of God, without any love for God without any knowledge of God's love for us. That's a big reason why it's so dangerous. It's that uh, one, of the, you know, one of the reasons God puts us through these trials is that we experience his protection and goodness and power through it. And that's what David was able to do. The power of the Spirit kicked in. And he remembered God's promises to him again. Same promises 
But now David remembered them. If you remember the story, first God sends Abigail to remind him of the promises. And then in two instances, God actually turns Saul to speak the promises to David out of the mouth of his enemy. But now here we see David internally from the inside. The spirit is working in him. All of those tragedies have lined up. And David is saying to himself in his head, tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. God has always come through. God has always protected me. God has always shown his power for me and I have no reason to believe that this time is going to be any different. And it says he strengthens himself in the Lord his God, even in the darkest moment. Which is, I think, what God's purpose is in the hardships and the trials that we face. Uh, Whether they're big trials, whether they're smaller trials, what God is doing to us is he's shaping us into people who can completely trust in his goodness and in his promises and in his power for us, no matter what our circumstances are. And when he does that, he's shaping us in that way. We become more, not completely ever in this life, but we become more bulletproof. We become free because we can rest even in the amongst of the tension of trial And in that freedom, we can become even dangerous to the devil and what he wants to do in the world because our trust of God. That's what God is shaping us into. Uh, The second thing David did was he availed himself of God's presence. He goes to, he calls the priest, Abiathar the priest, and he calls for this thing called the Urim and Thummim, uh, and he inquires of God. He says, God, should I go after them? God says, yes. Shall I rescue them? Will I rescue them? God says, yes. Uh, I've always been fascinated by this Urim and Thummim Urim and Thummim thing in the Old Testament. Side note, the actress, Uma Thurman, her name is a play on Urim and Thummim. She's, she's Jewish. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but... Uh, what were they? What were these things? The best we can tell, what we know uh, is that they were, they, were, they were some sort of lots or stones or dice. The high priest kept them in the breastplate of his ephod uh, and they would answer yes or no questions directly from God to the king through the priest or other high-level covenant officials. The, pre- the king could go to the priest and ask, high-level questions, yes-no questions about, about the people, and God would answer him directly. And I don't know about you, but when you hear that, has any of you ever thought to yourself, man, I wish I had some of those? Wouldn't that make things easier? You know, God, can I, should I get this job? No, don't take this job. God, should I date this girl? No, do not date that girl. God, should I date this girl? Yes, you should date her. God, should I invest? Should I invest in this company? Yes, invest in that company. Doesn't that sound like things would be so much better if we could do that? If God would directly speak to us in those questions? People long for this so much. There's a lot of Christians that actually say we can do that. Direct line of answers from God. Because it's so tempting. But I want to suggest to you uh, that we actually have something better. I looked, I looked this up and I looked at the history 
over the course of Israel and all into the New Testament, this whole Urim and Thummim thing. And they show up in Exodus for the first time. Uh, the last time we hear of them by name is in the book of Ezra, where nobody seems to know where they are. Uh, but then the last time, listen, the last time we hear about the casting of lots in the Bible, who can tell me, any Bible scholars out there? Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 in the New Testament. Judas is dead. They have to pick a new disciple who was with the Lord's people from the beginning. And it says they cast lots and Matthias is chosen. Acts chapter 1. Now what happens in Acts chapter 2? Pentecost. In Pentecost, Peter, he, he, he quotes this, this uh, a prophecy from the book of Joel talking about daughters will, will dream, your old men will dream vision, or have visions and dream dreams and, and the whole, the gist, the, we're not going to get all the minutiae of it, but the gist of that prophecy of Joel, what Peter is, why Peter is bringing that up in, uh, in, in the context of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon God's people is what he's, the big idea that he's saying is that everyone, every new covenant believer will have a better understanding of Jesus and of God and of the plan of salvation and in the full counsel of God than anyone in the Old Testament. Think about that. Jesus says the same thing about John the Baptist. He says John the Baptist was the greatest in the Old Covenant but the least of those from the New Covenant. He's saying that any New Covenant believer will have a better understanding, better, more discernment, more, more knowledge of God and of Christ and of the plan of salvation uh, and of grace and mercy and everything that God has been doing in the world from the beginning. Any New Testament believer will have a, more of a knowledge of that. Think about that. That means we know more about the plan of salvation than Isaiah We know more about God's plan of salvation, more about the Messiah than any of the prophets of Israel. Uh, And how do we know that? Because we have because we have the completed Bible, the Word of God, uh, and we have the Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost that illuminates us to the meaning of it so that we can grow in our discernment, in our ability to know the answers to those yes-no questions, our ability to have wisdom, our ability to know the mind of Christ. But what does Paul say in Romans 12? He says that, uh, he, says, he says to be transformed in our minds so that we will be able to approve the things of God, what's good and pleasing to God. Not just get yes and no answers to specific things, but grow in our ability to discern God's will, to grow in our ability to know what is pleasing to God by immersing ourselves and meditating in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit and the illumination that we have in that is better than rolling dice. You think so? I think so. So what we have, I think is actually better. So, Look, David strengthened his self in his, in his God. God assures David that he will find and defeat the Amalekites. And then he trusts in God's providence. And he trusts in God's providence that God's providence would see him through. And that's the second part. 
that God's providence will see us through. I was looking, thinking about this, reading stories about search and rescue and, and how difficult that is to find people that go missing, especially in wilderness areas, about the level of, of volunteers needed, hundreds of volunteers and helicopters and, uh, and computer uh, models and everything that we have in, in technology today to find missing people in wilderness areas. And still, uh, it's still true that if we aren't able to find people in the first 24 hours, it's, almost, it's very unlikely that we'll be able to find them past that point, even with all that technology. Now, why, is, why is that important? Because David, uh, has to go out and find these raiders in the Negev, which is over 4,600 square miles of area, and he's on foot. He doesn't have any computer models, he doesn't have a helicopter. He doesn't have anything other than God's promise that if he goes out and looks and it goes out that he will rescue these people. So if you, if I was David, my next question rolling those Umar and Thurman would be, can I get the GPS coordinates? But of course those dice didn't do that. He couldn't get GPS, global positioning system information from God. But what he could get was GPS, God's providential system. He could trust in God's providence as he went out to look for this, this band of raiders uh, and trust that even though the chances of him finding them on his own was like finding a needle in a haystack, actually worse, that God in his providence would come through and that's what happens. So this is what David does. Look at verses 8 and 9. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. So David set out on the 600 men who were with him. There's a principle in there. And the principle is that faith in action meets up with providence. Faith in action meets up with God's providence. He didn't have any idea, which maybe he had a... I'm sure that David knew something of the land. He knew something about Amalekites and their raiding practices and their camps and their history so he was able to make as best he could an educated guess and then head out in that direction which tells us something because how many times do we get wrapped around the axle thinking about what is God's will for our life what should we do next should I take this job should I not take this job all those questions we wish we had the dice to answer for us should I date this person should I not should I take this job should I not take this job as we grow in discernment, what God says is that we take into account everything and we make the best educated decision that we can and then we move forward in that decision in faith, not in foolishness, but in faith about an educated guess about what the best direction to go is and God promises to work in that, to lead us and guide us into his will and that's all we have to worry about. That's all David did. He trusted God was going to come through on that promise. He made the best educated decision he could and then he went out. And what happened? He found providence. And what did providence look like? One skinny Egyptian guy in the middle of the desert. What are the odds of that? 
What are the odds of that? Backtrack that, of the setup of it. Here's the Amalekite commander who ditches this useless, what he feels like is a useless person in the middle of the desert, completely unaware that that is going to be what God uses for his undoing. And then David comes across this single man in the middle of the desert. There's no big sign over, the, over it. There's no lengthy description in the Bible saying this is God's providence. But as believers, we know that that was no coincidence God had set up that slim providence for David to run into. And that is what led him to the people that he needed, that he needed to find. And that's what God's, that's what providence looks like more often than not. It's not the sky rider. Uh, it's not, it's not the... It's, it's not the skywriting message in the sky. It might just be a text message. It might just be a chance encounter somewhere. It might just be something that someone next mentions offhand to you or somebody that you just run into and meet while, you know, while you're out shopping. And those, think about those little things that run into you that end up being the small, seemingly inconsequential things that leads you into God's providence and God's, and, and God's care for you. My, I have my, my biological mother, uh, my birth mom, I was adopted when I was a small kid, but I ended up being able to meet my mom later in life. I also have a, a, a half-brother. And she told me this story about, when she figured out that I was a pres- when I told her I was a Presbyterian minister, she told me this story about when she knew that God was real. She was in, uh, she had just had her son, the husband, uh, or the, 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 not the husband, the boyfriend, the father of the child wanted her to abort the child and she was like, I am never ever going to give away another baby. And so she left him with absolutely nothing, managed to get an apartment and the apartment was empty. There was no furniture, there was no food, there was nothing in it. And she said, I sat on the floor of this apartment and cried and I cried out to God, I cried out to this God that I didn't know and I asked him, to save me. And then she said to herself, I must go out and do something. I'm going to go out and try and find a job. And so she, not kidding, she gets up from the floor of her empty apartment and she walks outside in the hallway. She meets her neighbor from across the hall who says, hey, you always seem like a nice lady to me. I'm leaving my husband. I wondered if you'd like to have all of our furniture and the food in our house. And she was like, at that moment, I knew God was real. That little chance meeting, seemingly small thing, she met that woman in the hall and it gave her a new start. Look, <clears throat> and so what do you do when you hit that darkest hour before dawn? You're not sure if the sun is coming up at all. You can remember God's promises. Remember that God's promises are for you, that He is your God, that He is our God, not just the God. And then we step out in faith and we look for those small, seemingly inconsequential things that pop up that are God's providence leading us to the next thing, leading us into the dawn. And that's what's happening to David in this next section. In our darkest hour, God's providence will see us through to a better tomorrow. That's the third part. 
I've been telling you that the, the narrator has been setting uh, these chapters in rapid uh, opposition to one another. David, Saul, David, Saul, David, Saul. <clears throat> and he's doing that to contrast what's happening between David and Saul. And as you pick up, if you read the language and you're reading it in the Hebrew, you can see from the, the way that he uses the verbs that these actions are all happening simultaneously. As David is pursuing the Amalekites, the Philistines are pursuing Saul. Uh, as, uh, as, as the Philistines uh, are annihilating Saul and his dynasty on Mount Gilboa, David is eliminating God's, a big chunk at least, of God's enemies somewhere just beyond the brook Besor, which, of course, by chance happens to mean the brook of good news in Hebrew. Look at what happens, verse 18 and 19. This is, this is what's really important. David defeats the enemies of God, and then it says in verse 18 and 19, and David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether great or small, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Now, this is no small thing. The Amalekites are desert raiders. They are the plague of God's people. I mean, the Philistines uh, are, you know, like the, the Soviet Union. They're the, they're the big threat against Israel as a nation. But the Amalekite raiders are the raiders that are every day raiding these towns of Judah, burning them to the ground, stealing people, taking sons and daughters away. They are uh, the everyday plague of God's people, and it's a serious and, and big deal. It is an everyday terror. And what this presents David as is David, David is the one who is able to defeat their enemies. David is the one who is able to restore everything that was lost to God's people. And that, those two verses I read, it says it three times in a row, that David restored all of nothing. Nothing did David not restore. Nothing was missing, whether small or great. Why is this important to the story? Because it shows, it presents David uh, as the one who is able to deliver God's people from their enemies, to restore their fortunes. Uh, And even though David has suffered greatly, here at the end, we we see the purpose of all of it. We finally see the dawn coming up. We are able to see now the full picture of God's providence in this awful story of David through the wilderness. We see that David in the wilderness wanderings is, 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 has, been, has been wandering through all the cities of Judah and the elders of Judah and protecting them and being, becoming known. We see uh, that in sparing Saul two times, uh, even though he prolonged his suffering in the desert, he preserved himself from being seen as a rebel in the eyes of the people. We see that in, in the restraining grace of Abigail, when God sent Abigail to restrain David from killing Nabal. Not only did God restrain him from killing uh, Nabal, who was a Carmelite, he was a Calebite from Carmel. He was almost, he was like royalty in Judah, like nobility in Judah. 
If he would have killed him, it would have made him look really bad in the eyes of the elders of Judah. And not only that, he ends up marrying Abigail, who is like a Carmelite almost princess. He marries one of the people of these great cities of Judah as his wife. Uh, And even the Amalekite raid, in that he shows himself to be the deliverer of God's people, He shows himself to be able to restore the losses of God's people. Uh, He shows himself to be the protector of God's people. And so all those things are like moving forward to present David to the cities of Judah as their true king. And at the very end of the story, David sends out these tributes, sends these gifts out to all of the major cities in Judah, especially Hebron, or he will very shortly be crowned king of Judah. This is the beginning of David's kingdom. The sun is now rising, and the darkness is over. And in David's grateful response, we see this strange story where at the end, David comes back to all the men who are left on the other side of the brook of the good news and he shares with them equally the wealth of the kingdom that he's just captured. And a lot of people, he greets these people, he greets them with peace. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of opinions in the, in the commentaries about what does this mean? But I think what this means is it shows a perfect ending to this, this part of David's story. It's a perfect ending to the book of First Samuel because it shows us in totality a picture of Jesus and what he's done and who he is. That Jesus is the suffering servant who went through great ordeals in order to bring the kingdom and to win the kingdom for us. God put him through deep hardships. Uh, we see Jesus is the one who crushes God's enemies and puts them underneath his feet. And we see that God restores, he restores God's people and everything that they had lost Uh, And we see him coming into his kingdom, crowned in the heavenly realms, uh, and given all authority and power. We see this picture of Jesus, and probably best of all, and what I think this little story is about the people at the river, is that Jesus greets everyone in his kingdom with peace. Even those people who are too exhausted on their own to cross over the river or the brook of Besor, the brook of the good news. It shows us that Jesus shares the wealth of the kingdom with all of his people. Even those who are exhausted by sin and by hardship, it is Christ and his righteousness that wins the day and gives us our salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. In our darkest hour, God's providence will see us through to a better tomorrow. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this, this amazing story. We thank you for the beauty of it, the literary beauty of it. We thank you uh, for how it has shown us the depths of human character and depravity. But even more so, we thank you for how it has shown us the depths and, of your mercy and your grace and the beauty of our Lord Jesus, Lord. And we pray that this would comfort us as we live through hardship, as we live through what feels maybe like the darkest hour of our lives, some of us may be feeling like that's where we're at right now. 
to know that you are good, to know that we can trust in you, to know that your salvation is working even now, and to know that no matter how tired we get, no matter how exhausted we may become in our own sin and in the hardships of the world, that we, what we trust in is Jesus greeting us in peace and sharing with all of us equally the spoils of his victory on the cross, which is eternal life and blessedness with you. So let that console us, let that comfort us uh, as we wait for that day when you come and get us, Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.